It's nice to see you this morning. We're in a series about what we need as believers in order to really grow and become spiritually mature. And we talked a lot about, on the first week, about the Bible. You know, reading the Bible, meditating on it, you know, learning it. And that's going to obviously help you to grow spiritually. The second one that we talked about was prayer. We need an intimate relationship with God. I want to talk to him. I want to be close to him. And prayer is something that we know is important. The third one I want to talk about is relationships. This gets neglected a lot of times by people that want to grow spiritually. They believe that it's all about just how much you know the Bible. But it's in the relationships that you live out the Bible. It doesn't matter how much I know the Bible. If I don't have relationships going on and I'm not living it out, I'm not very mature. So spiritual maturity is all about relationships. And the Bible talks so much about the relationships with one another within the church, the fellowship that you have with one another for spiritual growth. So I want to talk about that. As I was looking at Acts, because in the book of Acts, it gives the example of what was happening in the early church. I saw a lot of other stuff in there. I'm going to talk about a lot of stuff, and some of it's going to be vision. It's not stuff for today necessarily for our church, but it's going to give us a vision like, okay, that's what they did. We should be prepared. We should be heading and walking in that direction to be a healthy body. In Romans 12, 5, it says, so in Christ, we who are many, talking about all of us, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. So each of us are separate people, but together we make a body, and we belong to one another. So you can circle the word belong. We already see in that verse what Christian fellowship is. As a Christian, I can't be the Lone Ranger. I belong to you, you belong to me. We see something similar to this in marriage, when the Bible talks about marriage. It says... The man's body no longer belongs to himself only. It also belongs to his wife. The woman's body no longer just belongs to her. It also belongs to her husband. So in marriage, you kind of get that concept. Like, I belong to Tanya. She belongs to me. We're together. We're one. Even though we're two separate people. So the idea behind the Christianity in the church is we're separate people, but we belong to one another. Like a family. In Galatians, it says this. Let us do good to all people. But then he says, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. And circle the word family. The family of believers. Because the Bible calls it a family because that's what the intention is of God and Christ. That we're family. And that means... You're my family. I should desire to be closer to you, get to know you better. And some families are larger than other families. Some families have cousins and cousins and cousins, and you don't know them all. You know, you don't know them all, but it's still your cousin. You know, you see somebody messing with him, and you say, hey, leave him alone. That's my cousin. And he might not be close to you. You know, so the sense of family. Do you notice how all, every family has that odd person in the family? Every family does. 
You know, if you're thinking my family doesn't, it's probably because it's you. But no, I'm just teasing. But, uh, but the point being is we all have odd people in our family. But we say, you know, but that's my uncle. Leave him alone. Don't make fun of him. He's my uncle. We take up our family. And we love them all. Just because my uncle's a little bit odd doesn't mean I don't love him. I love him. He's just kind of odd. But he's family. And that's what you do with family. That's why in the body of Christ, we love everybody. We love everybody. We don't, like, give special attention to one person over the other person. Because our, our family. You know, we're... we're, we're one in that way. Most churches, though, including ours, I should say our church, but most churches, we believe in our minds that we're supposed to be a family and have relationships, but it's not structured for relationship. Because most churches are structured exactly like ours. We come in here, we sit down, we look forward. You might see the back of somebody's head, but that's not relationship building. You know? And then we go home. But we know the Bible wants us to be family, but it's never going to happen. It just won't. The church structure doesn't allow for that if this is all we do. If this is all we do, it doesn't allow. It, it just can't happen. Now, people will come to church for a variety of reasons. I was reading a book on this. They were giving all the reasons why people will go to church. They're going through marriage strife. Um, Someone in the family died, and it's gotten them thinking about eternity. It's usually through some sort of conflict or, you know, change in life. They're new to the neighborhood. They don't know anybody. They want to meet people. But there's a whole list of reasons why people go. But the book said there's only two reasons why people stay. One is they like the pastor, and the other one is they built friendships with one another. And if they don't like the pastor or they're not building friendships, they won't stay. Sometimes they'll put up with the pastor if they have good friends. <laughs> but those are the two reasons. So I thought, now that goes back to these verses. It's just like what the Bible was saying. We're family. We're, there's relationships. So it makes sense. They knew way back then what makes people want to be a part of the church. You know, obviously, uh, some come, like I said, because they like the pastor, but People stick around because they have friendships going, and that's what it's supposed to be. And then as I was looking at the church in the Bible, you see them growing really fast, but they don't have any buildings. Now, they did have the temple because they were all Jewish at that time, and they still have the temple. This is the early church in Jerusalem that I was reading about. They still have the temple because they were all Jewish. They could still gather in the temple and have a large group meeting. You know, the temple could hold 50,000 people. If they stood up, they could have a meeting for 50,000 people. That's amazing. But they would still have access to that. But other than that, you know, they didn't have buildings. They, they didn't own their own separate buildings. And they didn't have seminary-trained pastors. You know, it was just a group of people. One was a fisherman. You know, other guys, you know, they were those type of jobs. They weren't trained pastors. And yet they were growing rapidly, you would think they would need better training for that to happen. So I started looking deeper into things, and I started looking deeper into my own heart because I have a burden. I have two burdens, and they conflict with each other. One burden is I believe we all have people that we love, that we care about, like a family member, a friend, and 
I have a burden for them. Like if someone's going through a marriage problem, I'm talking about people outside of the church, that I want to be able to reach them and see that marriage come together. Or a person that's uh, been struggling with a drug habit, I want us, when I say I, I want us to be able to reach them and love them and help them have victory. So I have a burden for what I would call the lost, the people that don't know God, they're struggling. They, they maybe know God, but they're not living for him right now. And they're hurting and messed up. And my desire is, because I have people in my family like that, and my dream would be to be able to reach them and start bringing them here. Because I think if they got to know you all and had this type of support, they, they would do well. I mean, we have a loving church, no doubt about it. So if I have people that I love like that, I know you do too. So, but if that really happened... And generally, we have about 100, counting the kids, and, and we generally have about 120 people. If we all just brought in one person, that's 240. And then if all of them, a few years later, brought in another person, that's 480 people. The other burden I have is, how about the people that are already here? If, if all these new people start coming in, how are we going to take care of the people that are already here? Because then it becomes a time issue. You can't meet everybody's needs. It becomes too much. So I want to reach, I want to see everybody come to God, but at the same time, I don't want to neglect us. And as a pastor, you're trying to balance that. I want to make sure we're okay, but we've got to reach them. But as we're reaching them, we're not taking care of us. You understand the dilemma that it takes. But then I started thinking, if they were growing so fast, people wouldn't keep coming if their needs weren't met. If they were being neglected, they'd stop coming. What are they doing? Why is it working in the Bible? And why is it so hard for a church to really love people and care for them and, and have that family thing? So first of all, in your notes, I want to look at this growth, the amazing growth of the first church. The church at Jerusalem grew incredibly fast, of course. In Acts 1.15, this was really weird. You know, when you're studying this at the time, we averaged 120 people. The church was 120 people. <laughs> exactly the same size as ours. That was all. That was all the believers in Jesus in the whole world. That was it. Just 120 at that time. 120. Same size as our church. On the day of Pentecost, Peter gets up and speaks and people are listening, and 3,000 people joined their church that day. Talk about problems. How do you baptize 3,000 people? I mean, it was a big problem. Boom. That's church growth. Then in verse, um, chapter 2, verse 47 in Acts, it says believers were being added daily. When they say daily, I don't know if that's supposed to be taken literal, but if it is, that's a minimum of 365 people a year that start believing. But now it's, a, like it's like a daily thing where people are starting to put their faith in Jesus. By the time you get to Acts chapter 4, when you're reading through it, it seems like it's happening fast, but it's, it's taking time. There's some time gaps in between. But in Acts chapter 4, it says, okay, now at this point in the church, uh, there are now 5,000 men that are believers. They just count the men. What that meant usually is the man means the family unit. So anytime you see 5,000 men, you're going to find 5,000 women. And anytime you have 5,000 men with 5,000 women, there's 10,000 kids. 
So at that point, the church was running 20,000 people. Now, that's amazing. It, ha- it hasn't been that long yet. Um, then, as far as time goes, then it says in Acts chapter 5, it says, uh, they kept being at it. Acts chapter 5, verse 28 said, they filled all of Jerusalem. Acts uh, 6, 1 said, the number was rapidly increasing. And then verse 7 says, it was increasing rapidly. I guess that's the same thing, right? Um, Acts 21, 20. This is 25 years later. So it started with 120 people, the size of our church. And in uh, 25 years later, my version said, many thousands believed. So I thought, what does that mean? So I looked it up in the Greek, and it means tens of thousands. So then I thought, what do historians say? And they said, Jerusalem was 200,000 people at that time. 100,000 were believers in Jesus. Isn't that amazing? In one church. 100,000 believers. First Baptist Church of Jerusalem was big, right? So they had whatever the church name was, which they probably didn't have a name. They just called it the church or whatever. But they had... 100,000 people. So here's a question I have, and you can see it in your notes. Where did they put all those people? What did they do? 100,000 people? In Acts chapter 5, verse 42, it says this. They met day after day in the temple courts and from house to house. The temple courts is where they could have a large group meeting, like what we do on Sunday, and house to house is small groups. And These are both essential for growth, for health in a church. Like I said, the temple courts could hold 45 to 50,000 people. So if they did a 9.30 and 11 o'clock service in the temple courts, that's 100,000 people. Right? There are two services. They said they met in homes. So they had these large group celebrations. And I'm sure it was pretty awesome. I've I've gone to some, uh, some of the huge churches that we have in America and Saddleback has like 20,000 people. And when you have 20,000 people, I mean, that's enough people that they have so many professional musicians, professional singers, uh, professional this and that. The quality that they put together on Sunday morning blows me away. They have like high up execs in Disney organizing their, how they come, you know, come across and how they do things. I mean, because... When you have 20,000 people, you have a variety of people, and you, you, have, the amount, you have the talent of 20,000 people. Now, don't leave our church to go to those big churches. That's not the point that I'm getting at. You know, but what I'm trying to get at is they could do something really impressive on Sunday to make you think, wow, that was amazing. But you still go home and not know anybody, have no relationship, probably not really grow spiritually. Like you could, but you could have a wow experience. Wow, that was great. You could bring a friend that didn't know the Lord, take them in there, and they say, wow, and it can impress them. They say, that was amazing. The singers were great. Wow, you know, whatever. You you can just really, like, blow their socks off, but it doesn't mean that they're going to grow spiritually. That's why they also met in the homes, because in a home, you can talk to one another. You can build each other up. You can have the relationships, like those verses said, at the, at the beginning. In a home, I can share a prayer request. And someone will actually pray for me. That can't happen 
in a large group like that. We don't, we, it couldn't even happen in this environment. Um, then I looked at Romans 16.5. It says, greet the church that meets in their home. Then in Corinthians, it says, the church that meets in their home. Then Colossians says, the church that meets in her house. When you're going through the, the Bible, they either met in these huge groups, you know, that they had, and then all the rest of the time was in their homes. And I, my original thinking is, is it just cultural? That's what they did at the time? Or is it inspired by God? Is this a strategy that God had in place? You know, so I started thinking, what are the advantages of meeting in the house? Well, you can fill in the blank here. It's infinitely expandable. There's going to always be houses to meet in. You know, you could keep meeting, meeting, meeting. If there's 10 new people, you've got a place to meet. You have, uh, a church building is so limited. You can't expand it beyond the walls. But since all of us have homes that we live in, the church, this church, is probably in about 100 different locations. Because this church is in here, but this church is also in San Pedro, where I live. The church is where you live, where you live, where you live. You, the, our church is all over the place. Because everybody, because the church is what? The body of Christ, it's us. So wherever we are, that's where the church is. So I thought, well, how many locations does your church have? I heard a church, a mega church saying we have five different locations. I'm going to say we have 80. Our church has 80 different locations. Because wherever we are, that's a church. So, but it's, a, you know... There, you never run out of space to meet, for sure. It's unlimited geographically. We have people that come to our church for 30 and 40 miles away, and they'll come on Sunday morning. But it would be really hard for them to come on a nighttime with traffic after work and stuff to get here and go back when you're that far away. But if people meet in homes, you could have a meeting out there 30 or 40 miles away. It's also good stewardship. That word stewardship is more of a Bible word. But it means being wise with your money. It's good stewardship because a church that grew like, they're, uh, like they grew, they probably would never have enough money to make all the buildings they would need to house people for meetings and this and that. But by meeting in the homes, they saved thousands of dollars. We're the same way. It's so expensive in Southern California that it just makes, it's just good common sense finance. It also promotes relationships because when you're in somebody's home, it's more relaxed. When I was a kid, we used to have Sunday school. But at Sunday school, when I was a kid, we went to church, and the man wore suits and ties, and the women all dressed up. There's nothing wrong with this, but it wasn't a relaxed atmosphere. It wasn't like, when I was a kid going to church, it wasn't like, come as you are, be relaxed, let's hang out. But it was all suit and tie and everything. It was kind of like, you know, too professional. And we weren't real. When you're in someone's house, people don't show up, ever show up in a suit and tie. You know, it's, it's, what I'm trying to say is, it's, it creates an atmosphere where you're sitting on the couch. You're drinking a glass of tea or something. It's, the atmosphere is relaxed. People learn better when they're relaxed. The more stressed out they are in an environment, someone goes to a new church, they want to sit in the very back. Why? Because they can escape if it gets weird. Have you gone to those churches before where you wanted to escape because it got weird? So, you know, they, they, they're kind of nervous. They don't learn as well when they feel that way. But when people come into a relaxed atmosphere, they learn more. We're very relaxed here, but not as relaxed as we are in somebody's home, sitting in the couch, that type of thing. So, 
I see the benefits of what they're doing there. Then it goes into number three I have here. How did they care for so many people? Now, to answer this, I first had to ask some other things or answer some other questions here like on this. Then first note there is a growing church is biblical. That's the first thing. Because first of all, are we supposed to grow? In Acts chapter 6, verse 1, it says, in those days, the number of disciples was increasing. And as you're reading about the increasing, it wasn't a negative thing. It was something that throughout the book of Acts, it was something positive. Uh, it was God was behind it. It was a good thing. I know this with children. If you have children and they're not growing, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. A health issue, there's something wrong. Kids should be growing. Now, at my age, we can still grow, but I start growing out this way now. But uh, if something's, if, you know, if a child's not growing, there's a problem. I think churches are sometimes in the same way. Sometimes if we're not growing, it could be that we have a health problem as a church. There could be something unhealthy within the church. So in those days, the number of disciples was increasing. You can circle the word increasing. That was normal uh, Christianity. The second point here is church growth causes problems. So I saw that. In Acts chapter 6, verse 1, it said, there were rumblings of discontent. Because what I noticed was happening in the churches there, as you read about it, is as they were growing, people's needs weren't being met, like I was talking about. They're falling through the cracks. It, it gets to be, you know, someone has a problem and no one's there to help them because nobody knows because it's getting too big. So I thought, okay, well, what did they do? And number three, what I noticed was problems are always unmet needs. Here's what it said. The Greek-speaking Jews claimed their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. What they start noticing is as the church was growing, some of these widows, they didn't have a husband back then. And being a widow was really rough back in those days. They didn't have social security or anything. And uh, they had social insecurity. So what happened was they were su suffering because the church got going so big that it was easy to neglect people. They said, these poor widows, somebody needs to reach out to them. You know, they're barely surviving. They don't even have enough food to eat. And we're the church. We're supposed to be like Jesus. And they're part of our church. And they don't have enough food to eat. And we don't do anything about it. So that's a big problem, I think. Then the next thing I noticed was the pastors cannot do it all. They brought the problem to the pastors. And here's what they said. It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. What they're saying is, they're saying, we have our families. And we're spending so much time, you know, studying the word and teaching. They were in charge of the leadership and organizing everything as well. There's other verses that talk about that. That our plates are full. What are we going to do? We can own, like me, for example, I can only handle so many counseling meetings. I can only handle so many, you know, because I still have a family. I still have kids I need to be with. I still have to put together a sermon. And like, I can only do so much. That's what they were doing. We can only do so much. What are we going to do? So number five there is lay ministers are to assist the pastors. Here's what they said. Choose seven men full of spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. Here's the principle. They delegate it. They said, wow, we want to have a healthy church, but we can't do it all. So we say, Larsenia, would you cover the prayer team? 
back of your bulletin. Jerry, would you cover the worship team? We can't do it all. I can't do it all. Dennis, would you cover the men's ministry? Anthony, would you do our media outreach? I, I can't handle Facebook and all that stuff. It's, I'm, it's too much. Lisa, would you uh, plan the fellowship activities? Uh, David, would you do the community outreach events? You just go through the back of the bulletin. You can go on and on through there. That's what they were doing. They were doing exactly what we were doing. They weren't trying to do it all. They were just taking people like you and me that love God and say, hey, would you do that? Would you do this? Would you do that? And what happened? <clears throat> Here's the result of lay ministry was more church growth. It says the proposal pleased the whole group. <clears throat> so the word of God spread and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. So simply by saying, I don't want to be a bottleneck and ruin this church. Would you do it? Would you do it? Would you do it? Would you do it? Can you handle this? Can you handle that? Because I don't want to be the bottleneck that ruins the church. Simply by allowing other people to just serve God in whatever way they, they like to do it. Then the church started going again. It started growing. Now, I see this in the Bible, and I've seen a lot of churches. And I say, well, it worked in the Bible, but I don't see it working. <laughs> I don't know any churches that are doing this. I certainly don't know churches that have 100,000 people going to their church. But worldwide, is it working somewhere else that I haven't seen? Do you know that right now there are eight churches in the world that have 50,000 people every weekend? I'm not trying to tell you that our goal is to have 50,000 people on a weekend. Let me tell you what our goal is before I go there. Here's my goal. Anybody that you love and care about and people that you meet and meet people that you don't know, that need Jesus, that are hurting in any way, I want to reach them for Christ. I want to reach them for Christ. You know, your mom, your dad, your son, your daughter, whoever you love, even people you don't know, but maybe a person at work, whatever, I want to reach them for Christ. That's my goal, reach people for Christ. Second goal, when they come here, let's make sure they're taken care of. If that means 120 people, if we're reaching people for Christ and they're being taken care of, praise God, that's my goal. If it means 120,000, you know what? I don't care. I really don't care. I just want to love God. I want to love people, and I want to be Jesus to the world, meaning us. Let's be Jesus to the world. But that's up to God, right? If God brings people, fantastic, whatever. God's not going to bring them automatically. I'm saying we have to reach them and love them and care for them. But if the church did that, that's totally God's business. You know, that's not my business. My business is for us to love God and love the people and let God do the work. But when you're loving people, it will probably bring people in. But so before I scare everybody away saying we're going to have 50,000 people here, that's not where, where I'm going. But what I want us to see is what happens is it started in Korea. There's a church in Korea that said, why is it that we follow the structure of everybody meeting in a large group but in the Bible, they did large group and small group. Why don't we do the same thing? They met in homes. Why don't we do it like that? Maybe there's something spiritual behind this. Maybe it wasn't just culture. That's what that church in Korea said. And they just started saying, let's just be biblical. And they went for it. I'll tell you about that church later. But then it start, this idea started spreading to other people to do what the Bible says. There's eight churches that run 50,000 people per week. And one in El Salvador one in Chile, 
one in India, one in Korea, two in Brazil, two in Lagos, Nigeria. And what they do is they do large groups and they do small groups in homes. And, that's, and people kept coming and they kept reaching out and through the houses and through homes and that type of thing and trying to follow the Bible way. And they grew to 50,000 people, eight churches. Now, here's the amazing thing. These are not the largest churches in the world. There's eight churches larger than this that do the same thing. One is uh, the largest Presbyterian church in the world is in uh, Seoul, Korea. They run 60,000 doing the same thing. They, the only thing that these 16 churches have in common is they're all different denominations. They're all different personality types as a pastor, uh, different styles of worship. They only have two things in common. They get a large group, and they do a really fantastic job, and they have everybody meeting in homes throughout the week. That's the only thing they do in common. But the, the, the ones of Presbyterian church are all different kinds of churches. Um, in Manila, the Philippines, they have Victory Metro, 65,000. This is a weekly average at church. If you have 65 people come in weekly average, you probably have 100,000 people that go there. Um, deeper Christian Life, Lagos, Nigeria. This one has 65,000. I'm not talking about the other two in Nigeria that have 50,000. This one has 65,000. The fifth largest church, New Life Church, Mumbai, India, 70,000 people. All Nations Community Church, Seoul, Korea, 75,000 people. It gets even weirder here. The third largest church in the whole world, Calvary Temple, Hyderabad. Maybe a couple years ago, you remember, I talked about how I met that pastor in India, and he started this church, and he's doing the same thing that with the small groups and everything. And they were up to 90,000 people when I t- met him at a, a seminar and talked to him and uh, trying to like, like, what's going on? How are you guys doing that? Here's an amazing thing. They have 130,000 people. So they've grown 40,000 people just since I saw them two years ago. So they're running 130,000. But here's the thing. In, in India, Hyderabad, in India, it's against the law to change your religion. If you're born in a Christian family, in India, you have to stay Christian. It's the law. If you're born Muslim, you stay Muslim. If you're born Hindu, you stay Hindu. What they believe is when people try to convert others, they believe it causes conflict. And that conflict can cause wars because they had a big war between them and between the Hindus, a civil war between the Hindus and the Muslims during Gandhi's time. So this makes sense to them. So in a country where it's predominantly like 85% Hindu, these 130,000 people, they're almost completely Hindu. That was his target group. He purposely did not go after Christians. He, he purposely designed the church to connect with Hindu people. And now it's a church, and it's, very, it's called Calvary Temple. 130,000 people go there. That's amazing. It's not even a Christian society. It's a, these are all Hindu people breaking the law, the, those lawbreakers. Then Bethany Church of God. They have, a, that, they have 140,000, second largest, but it gets weirder. It's in Indonesia. Indonesia is the largest Muslim country in the world. In a Muslim country, it's against the law to change your faith and become a Christian or a Jew. They consider if you're a Hindu or Buddhist or that you're a total pagan. But that's how they think, you know. It's not against the law for your parents to kill you 
if you become a Christian. If you become a Jew, the government will kill you. But it's like, if my, I'm a Muslim and my daughter became a Christian, I can kill her, and there's no law against that because why wouldn't you? She became a Christian. You have to think that this is how it is in these countries. 140,000 in a Muslim country. Let me tell you what. There's not a, they didn't start a church and 140,000 Christians started going to that church. No, this is all, he geared it toward Muslims. In that type of environment, he's got the second largest church in the whole world. I, I'm like, whoa, how is this possible? It gets even crazier. Uh, you already know, if I say it right, full gospel church in Seoul, Korea. Dr. Cho is the one that started it. He's the one that first said, we need to start going back to the Bible. And at the time he said this, uh, at the time he said this, Korea was a Buddhist country back then when he started the church. Korea is now a Christian country because of him. Okay, here's our average weekly attendance, 480,000 people. They have a stadium. They meet seven times. They have a stadium, and they have uh, a seven-floor high-rise building, and they have TV screens in there. And seven times during the, uh, a Sunday, they fill up the stadium, like a soccer stadium and the high-rise seven times. They get 480,000 people to show up every Sunday, and then they meet in homes during the week. And he's the one that single-handedly led the strategy of how to do church right that made a Buddhist country now predominantly Christian. One man started this. And his church, and he's the one that inspired and trained this movement that now there are 16 churches around the world that have more than 50,000 people simply by having a large group and do it as good as you can and using homes and small groups for the rest. It blows my mind because I think, why would somebody even want to be a part of that? It sounds like it's too big and too hectic. Why would somebody want to be a part of that? There's two reasons. They like the pastor and they have friends. They've built relationships. Same reason why people become a church like ours. They like the pastor and they have friends. And why do they have friends? They have a system of small groups that are really good. And how are people's needs met? Because they meet in each other's homes on a regular basis. Their needs are met because they've learned that's how the church is supposed to be. Once they got it out of their mind that the pastor's not the church, the building's not the church, we're the church. Now, if we're the church, and let's just say that the group of us here, since you're closer to me, meet together once a week, and let's say you're sick, the church responds. But can you imagine thinking the old style if, the, if someone's sick and the pastor's going to go visit them? He, he, a pastor can't visit everybody. It's just too much. Like I said, they become the bottleneck. Or I had a, this is a true story, and if this was you that uh, said this to me, I just don't remember who did. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I hope it doesn't. But I just want to tell the story because it makes sense. I remember a lady coming to me. There was some sort of need that needed to be met, and this lady went and took care of it and came to me and said, the church needs to do something about this. And my response was, I think we just did. I think we just did. Because she is the church, right? If that was you, because I don't remember who it was, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. That's not my point. But when you did it, that was exactly what the church is. That was right on. It's not like the church needs to do something about this. It's, it, it's like this. You know what? The church just did something about that. When we understand what the church really is, now... 
we love each other, we have relationships, and we never, we would never in a million th- years think, oh, somebody, some, so-and-so is sick. Somebody needs to go visit them. The church needs to go visit them. You know what you would think? You think, oh, somebody's sick. I better go visit them because I'm the church, the, the individual. You are the church. Just like I said, we have, what, 80 church locations in the area? Once they got that, that's why they keep coming, because their needs are being met. Because this is real church happening. It's people like, pretend like I'm not the pastor, because people have a different idea there. But it's like people just like me and you, like normal people, just loving each other, caring, writing each other a card, noticing that someone's gone, and send them a letter. It's that type of thing. So, as I was reading it, I get it. I get it. Now, what did the first home churches do? In the Bible, here's what they did. They did Bible study, number one in your notes. The the question on the top is, what did the first home churches do? So they did Bible study. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles would teach, and they'd meet in the, the homes and talk about it. Next is fellowship, number two. It says, uh, and to the fellowship. That was building relationships is what that means. You know, sharing joys with each other, sharing needs, caring for each other. Communion, that's, uh, it says, unto the breaking of bread. Here's something that I noticed, and when you read the Bible, you see this. They never had communion at a church service like this. We do. We're going to still have communion at church services like this, but they never did. Um, every time you see communion, it was always done in somebody's house. You think, wow, never at the temple courts, but in the house. Because it was, a, it was more of a small... Now, we're going to still do communion, but we still need to know that biblically, it was done in homes. As we, in the future, when we develop more and we're having more meetings in homes, you can have communion at home. It's, it's not anywhere in the Bible that says a pastor is supposed to lead communion. That's not... It. The people did it. They meet together as families and do communion together. And then it makes you think, oh, yeah, that's what church is. That's what church is. Okay, prayer. Last week we talked about prayer and the power of group prayer. I used a verse that said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Um, There's power in prayer. But you can experience prayer together there. Meet one another's needs. I talked about that a little bit. They gave to anyone as they had needs. You know, someone needs a babysitter. So if we're able to do it, we set up and do it. So-and-so needs a babysitter, doesn't need to have a church meeting over that. If it's something, or you don't have to have permission. Let me put it this way. You already have my permission, okay? Uh, just do it. Just do it if you can do it. Um, you know, somebody's out of uh, work and needs help. Initiate it. Do something about it. Now, you say, like, we can use things like the bulletin to help and stuff like that. But what I'm trying to say is, the church is, you just do it. You, try, you just help. They ate together. That means they had social events. In verse 46, they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. That means have a barbecue and invite somebody over. They just, they ate together. It says, worship God, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Um, they sang together. Praising God usually means that they're singing. Evangelism. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And when I looked at these churches like in Korea and, and these other places that try to do the best worship service they can on Sundays, but encourage other people to really build relationships during the rest of the week, they, are, they were growing fast because people want to be loved. And that's I think, um, helps us to have a healthier church. Number five, 
I put it here, why should I start a home group or why should I go? We don't have, we don't have very many home groups right now. Now and then someone does one. But why should I start a home group? I'll understand the Bible better. Because if you're leading it or if you're involved in it, you can discuss the Bible more. You, you learn it better that way when you can talk about it. I'll feel like a real part of God's family. If I don't have Christian friends here, I might say that's my church, but do I feel like it's a part of my family? I think God wants you to feel like it's a part of the family, and that happens through relationships. Prayer will become more meaningful because when I pray, when I pray about things on my own, it's good, but there's something about me having people that I can talk to and pray with me or pray for me. Those are really, really great things. I'll be able to handle stress better. When I'm going through a hard time and I'm handling it all by myself, it's rough. But I have friends here in this church and I can talk to. I say, hey, you know, I'm going through this. I'm, and they're my real friends and they'll talk to me and they'll give me support. One thing I've noticed is because I have friends in this church, I've never been in a situation that I didn't feel supported because I have friends. You know, I talk to you guys and, and it's, it's been great. It's a natural, relaxed way to share my faith with others. Some people I meet, they wouldn't be caught dead coming to the church. Like, I've kind of invited them, and I can tell they would never step into a church because they've had some sort of experience with it as a kid. They have this pre uh, preconceived idea. But I've noticed I can get them to come to my house. So it's an easier way to... They're maybe not ready for church yet, but they'll come to my house. It's makes more sense to, if, I wanna, if I care about people and want them to know the Lord. Next, it will develop my leadership skills. Well, you learn leadership skills when you're around people. Like if you're leading a group, you have to learn leadership skills to do it. Think about skills. I say everybody has spiritual gifts and talents that you can use for God. You might say, I just don't know what my gifts are. We have a class where we do a spiritual gift assessment. It's really an assessment that you take. Will you write down the things that you think you're good at? It's a great assessment. And then you meet with somebody, and they help you walk through it. And then it's to help you to discover, where can I bet? I want to do something for God. I just don't know how. If that's you, you say, I want to do something for God, but I don't know how. And you want to take that assessment, we'll give it to you. If you write the word shape, shape stands for spiritual gifts, heart's passion, abilities, personality type, and experiences. If you write the word shape on your card, make sure your email is there. Um, we'll get you that, the test thing that you take to help you discover your gifts and how you can be used by God. Um, seven there, it will deepen my understanding of worship. A lot of people mistakenly believe that worship is what we do on Sunday, and it is. But you'll understand, like when you're doing communion in a small group or singing in a small group, you're going to say, oh, this is worship too. Here's what I learned this was important to me. I don't know if it's important to you, but it was important to me. Small groups aren't a gimmick. Small groups aren't a program. Small groups, was, it was God's pattern to have a healthy church. Because God's pattern is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So he loves everybody in the world, so that's his pattern. I want to reach the world. But how do I do that? Large group and small group. I thought... This is, it's God. It's, it's, it's the Bible. Ephesians 2.19 says, You are members of God's very own family, and you belong to God's household with every other Christian. You can underline, you belong in God's household. I became a Christian when I committed my life to Jesus. 
but I become a part of the church when I commit my life to you. And it's different. There are people that are Christians, they've made a commitment to Jesus, but they haven't said, I'm committed to you, meaning the, the church fellowship. Look at Hebrews 10, 25. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. As I was thinking about fellowship and Christian fellowship and we need one another, in a church our size, we'll probably not have very many small groups. I don't think they did either. You, most of the small groups, when you read about it, it was after they were 3,000 people. It wasn't when they were small like ours, when you're reading it in the Scripture. Probably because when they were small like this, they didn't have the need. And when you don't have the need, you're not looking for an answer yet. You're not seeking God for that answer that, hasn't, that, that you're not dealing with because you don't know that you need to seek God for that answer. But what they did have is really close relationships when they were 120 people. And I thought, I see the future of how churches need to develop and just be wise. And, and this is something that I can see why God would be behind that. I took a step back and said, now, here's where we are right now. Right now, it's really easy to build relationships if we want it to. And here's the commitment I want you to make. I would like everybody to commit that sometime over the next 12 months that you plan a barbecue or you plan uh, a Super Bowl party or you plan a woman's tea or you plan a dinner where you invite people or you plan to go out to dinner and you, you invite people from the church. People from the church. Now, can you imagine this? If everybody did this, if all the 90 adults that come here, if all of us plan something over the year, I'm not saying you have to invite 90 people. No. Once you get more than 10 people, somebody's going to be left out. But I'm saying like, hey, I love the UFC. I'm going to find the guys in the church I think would love UFC. And I'm going to pay to get it on my TV and invite them over. You know what I mean? Something I love doing and sharing it with them. And then those 10 guys get together. Might, some of them might be women that love the UFC, but it's usually guys that like, like that sport. We get together and we watch it together and we're having fun. Or I love football. I'm going to plan a Super Bowl party. I'm going to start planning ahead of time and, and start inviting people. Don't worry if you invite 10 and only five come. Okay? Because the point is to get to know each other better. Like I said, once you get over 10, people get neglected. It's too much. But if it's 10 or less, you can handle that. And you'll get to build friendships and this and that. And you can invite me. I'll only go to the ones I have time to go to. I can't go to 90 events over this year. But if you invited me and I'm actually able to go, I would go. I would think, wow. Because I'd be just so excited to see what's happening in the church. Even though I might have to say no sometimes. Like, I was invited to help kickstart the Financial Peace University that's happening today. But we're celebrating Arthur's birthday. And to me, my son's birthday wins over something that's going on in the church. I hope your son's birthday wins over something going on in the church. You know, because I think that that's healthy. I don't want my kid to grow up thinking, Dad loved the church more than me. No, that would be horrible. It would be a bad witness to him. So it's like knowing priorities and doing the right thing. So... I said no to the church event because that's my boy, and he's going to have a birthday party, and he's going to have fun, and I'm going to be there. So I won't go to everything that I'm invited to, but if you invite me, I'd feel really thrilled. Now, don't invite me to a woman's tea, <laughs> but if you invite me, you know, and I can go, I, I would like to go. 
With that, I'm going to close this in a prayer. Father, I believe that you're going to do great things through this church. Lord, help us to see that it's not enough to just read the Bible and pray, but we need each other. And Lord, what I'm seeking as a pastor is for us to find ways to build relationships so that we have solid, really healthy friendships and that we can meet one another's needs, that nobody gets neglected. Lord, that nobody in this church is going through a problem and nobody's there to care. Lord, I just want us to have the healthiest church possible. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.